What, which, this, that, or the other? From Bonnaroo to Coachella, traversing the music festival landscape can be tricky. That's where we come in with high fives for everyone. The What Podcast with Brad, Barry, Lord Taco, dedicated to exploring the entire festival scene. Brad has worked in the radio industry for more than 20 years and currently lives in Brooklyn, where he is program director for three stations, including one in New York, one in Detroit, and one in Miami. Barry's been a reporter for the Chattanooga Times Free Press, covering all aspects of the entertainment industry since 1987. That's before you were born. Lord Taco, the smart guy who makes these podcasts on our website at thewhatpodcast.com work. Also really good at identifying babies, loves blue-haired moms, PBR, and his beautiful Volkswagen bus. We all fell in love with the Bonnaroo Festival years ago, not only because of the amazing bands that play there every year, but also because of the incredible community spirit that has developed around it. Radiate positivity. And we really like talking about the inside baseball stuff when it comes to putting on a huge music festival. So join us. You can hear the What Podcast on the Consequence Podcast Network or anywhere you find your favorite podcasts. Hey pod people, Engineer Adam here, jumping in for a quick second to let you know about the brand new all-in-one platform for all of you creative podcasters out there. Anchor makes it easier than ever to make a podcast. It's free to use and has all the creation tools you need to record and edit your podcast right from your phone or computer. Plus, Anchor will get your podcast set up on Apple, Spotify, Stitcher, wherever podcasts are found. Even better, Anchor helps you connect with sponsors, even if you're just starting out. It's the perfect choice for podcasters, so make sure to check it out. Download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. That's A-N-C-H-O-R.fm. Back to the show. The kids on Elm Street don't know it yet, but something is coming to get them. There's something out there, isn't there? Halloween's a Freddy Krueger podcast. Was locked in a room with a girl who went in alive and came out in a rubber bag. From the Consequence Podcast Network, the minds behind the Losers Club comes a new podcast in fantasy terror. Nancy, there's something wrong with you. You're imagining things. Halloweenies, a Freddy Krueger podcast. Consequence Podcast Network. to all of you pod people out there. I'm your host, Leo Phillips, and welcome to another edition of This Must Be The Gig. It's a little podcast about all your things, live music and performance. So what we try and do each and every week is bring you fascinating conversations from the beating heart of the live music and performance scenes. And the way that we do that is chat to musicians, festival founders, choreographers, comedians, actors, really anyone obsessed with performance in the way that we are. And we find out what their first gig was, what their first performance was, their first album they ever bought on CD or vinyl or cassette, whatever mode they, they choose. Before we dig into this week's fantastic interview, let's check in with our constant companion here at TMBTG Studio. Engineer Adam. Hello. Hey, hi, hello. How's it going? It's going real well. How are you? I am doing well. I'm excited once again to dig into our favorite feature. Before we get into the into the interview as well, let's just go through the TMBTG Studios live show of the week where we pick and highlight one of the most heart-thumping events we could find out there, and we just share it with people. Amazing. And this week's live show of the week, we have a primetime stop on the triumphant return tour from French indie masterminds Stereolab, who we love here at the show. They're going to be at the Moda Center in Portland on Sunday, October 13th. We were lucky enough to see Stereolab here at the Pitchfork Music Festival over the summer here in Chicago. Mm -hmm. And uh, even though it was a shortened set because of some rain, it was... I think maybe my favorite performance of the summer. Definitely up there anyway. And opening for this stop at the Moda Center is the psych rock outfit Wand, who happened to include a former bandmate of this very person. Oh, yeah. The drummer for a band I was in in high school and college, mm. uh, Evan Burroughs. So go out there and see my pal Evan and also Stereolab. What a great little connection that is there, huh? If you want to get in on all of the excitement of that show and any other, you can head over to StubHub via cosradio.lv slash StubHub. 
and find the best selection of tickets to the hottest shows. That's cosradio.lv slash StubHub. Our guest today is Natasha Khan, aka Bat for Lashes, one of the most passionate and expressive writers out there. The London-born art pop artist went gold in the UK with her debut record Fur and Gold. After three more slabs of equally cinematic beauty, Natasha's most recent record is the slick and sublime and super cheeky Lost Girls, an album indebted to the bliss of Bananarama and Cindy Lauper and the grand scope of composer John Williams. So this week, Natasha calls in to discuss the complications of character-driven songwriting. We also talk about her experiences teaching meditation to newly released prisoners, opening for Radiohead and opening for Coldplay, and both of our Father's Days of Squash Glory. So let us not be delayed. Listen to our chat, then get listening. This is us. Enjoy! LA is definitely a strange, um, it's a very unique, strange sort of terrain compared to sort of like European cities or New York or something. I feel like LA is a whole new thing you have to learn how to navigate and it's so sprawling and so kind of rootless in a lot of ways. Um, But I agree, I think after a few years you kind of have your, you understand how the city works better and you have your friends and your community hopefully and um, you've gotten used to all the driving and the burning heat. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so, it's there's yeah. so many different things uh, apart from just the environment that is different. Just you, literally, there's just the feel of the air and how people look and how people talk. But it's also like I find the intention behind some people. I I've struggled a little mm-hmm. with that familiarity because we all grow up with American movies and pop culture when yeah. we're younger. But when you're actually living here and you understand how gigantic America is and how diverse it is, I feel like there's a lot of navigating that has to happen internally more so than, you know, getting mm-hmm. used to the weather and things like that. I, I don't know. It's just it's it's kind of a, it is a strange it is a strange thing. But within your identity, obviously, of who you are. How do you attach to a place and try and acclimate very quickly? Or do you still feel like you're very much, you know, your heart is very much with your family still? I think I'm quite a, um adaptable sort of person, especially being a musician and a creative person. I think I really love to live in different countries and absorb the culture and the landscape and and find like the differences quite fruitful and creative. Um so obviously my heart is with my family in, with, in England, but my family, like my dad lives in America, my mum's in Belgium, my cousins and aunties are in France, my boyfriend's from Australia. Like, <laughs> my life is very um, is very global and anyway. So um, I think wherever I go, I find something to connect with. I find lovely people and I try to find people with a similar sense of humour because I think that's really important. Um People that you can laugh with and dance with anywhere will make you feel at home. Just finding like my tribe of people wherever I go. And then I sort of like, I love that an hour and a half down the road, there's a desert or there's right. huge trees or, you know, compared to England, it's um, it's really wild and, and beautiful and epic. You know, the, the landscape that you can be in so quickly here. And that can, I'm sure, feed into the creativity. And I loved what you said now about being a creative person. There's a lot of what you do that is uh, in tune with absorbing other people's culture. You know, you do it whether it's mm-hmm. subconsciously or not. You're touring and you have been touring for so many years and you get to be mm-hmm. exposed to just so many different types of people so has that been something for you as an artist that's been incredibly rewarding in this journey? Because there's so many different facets of what you do. But has that element yeah. of it been been quite transformative for you? I don't know if it was a transformation. I think it's something I've just continued from childhood because coming from my dad who's in Pakistan and my mum's from England, 
Um, my dad is an international squash, you know, squash um, coach of like oh, a number amazing. one world champion. Oh my gosh! <laughs> who was who was my cousin? So <laughs> they we always had international kids coming to stay in our house. Kids from America, Canada, Pakistan, you know, Europe, and he was always training them, and they would live with us. And then he was touring the world all throughout my childhood. And I think before I was one, I'd been to almost every country in the world um, with my mum going on tour and stuff. So I think it's just very natural to me to be, I'm, I myself am a, I'm a combination of cultures um, and races. And it just makes sense for me to feel like the, the, the global community of my family. Like I don't feel... I, I feel I feel that I'm part of a world culture. You know, I'm not someone that's. I, I do have my heritage and my kind of love of England is very deep, but um, and that is my home. But I I, n- I never feel out of place in another country or another culture, just because I think it seems so normal to me to just um, to to be open-minded and and really enjoy differences. I love that he played squash. I think for anybody listening to the show uh, if they don't know what squash is <laughs> my dad played squash as well like every single oh, Sunday very 80s very, very 80s, 80s. literally when I was <laughs> when I was growing up in the 80s I used to go and sit and watch him play this really bizarre oh. sport I would say it's a very fast paced <laughs> racket sport there you go um, <laughs> between two comp- competitors um yeah exactly and like the ball just goes around but when we saw them play they'd have a glass court with one opaque wall and you can you know it's a bit like um an amphitheater sort of thing watching like you know lions fight the christians or something because it was very it was very like um theatrical yeah it's very gladiator because you're right i think i missed the biggest part of it it's so fast because you basically you i I think with tennis there is that thing with pacing is that how you Mm. how you get the ball to your opponent definitely depends on your talent and skill but in squash if if your talent and skill is like really strong and you're going full force at the wall the wall is the is essentially the opponent you know, there's like a third that's player. That's a good way of putting it. You know? Yeah, that's a really, that's a really good way of putting it. I think I was going to wake yeah. up today and have a <laughs> analyze squash. Discussion about squash. <laughs> yeah. So what did you guys chat about? Oh, it's... squash. You know, that's it. <laughs> <laughs> I think it was a really sweet thing, though, as a kid to see um, to see my dad, like, coaching younger children. And um, you were saying, like, what did I do when I came here to... Um, you know, adapt to LA. I actually worked as a teacher for 10 weeks as like a visiting artist teacher oh, wow, with okay. kids who had dropped out of school and it's a continuation school. And then I taught meditation um, to some prisoners who were who had come out of prison and were adapting to the workforce and stuff. So I think a part, part of me is, um, and I also trained as a nursery school teacher before I did music. So part of me, I think, has taken that thing from my dad of like nurturing younger people and wanting to direct them and help them. Um, but also his like his um, confidence and focus and passion and determination. I think, you know, you need a lot of that to tour the world, whether you're doing music or squash or whatever you're doing. It's, oh, absolutely. it's a very kind of focused, yeah, focused sort of athletic thing to do yeah and disciplined Um, as you said and there's so much uh, you can relate to in terms of having a student that you're teaching especially somebody from a background who's within the rehabilitation journey of coming from prison Mm -hmm. you also discuss there's so much discovery in that and I feel like in a musician's life there's a lot of inner discovery that's needed to happen but also just in general your your job is to observe really and mm-hmm. kind of teach everybody else what you've learned in the process yeah. I suppose I like to do stuff like that I think it's really good for me and good for them yeah, <laughs> you know like it's a two-way street because mm. being a creative person or a musician can be quite isolating sometimes when you're in the writing process or like you say observing or channeling ideas takes a lot of quiet time and reflection and alone time to sort of craft something and write you know write music and think and be in this world and 
Um, I think LA of all cities can be quite lonely and isolating too. So like those two things together, I was like, I need to get out. (laughs) I need to get the hell out. (laughs) (laughs) And do something and contribute, you know, because I needed some routine or a connection to like my community around me, which is a very heavily Hispanic Mexican community. And um, I just wanted to sort of delve into that more and be like, I'm not just going to turn up as an artist and just, waft around with my arty friends like I want to be I'm a citizen of this city and I want to um you know see what's really happening in the real world here yeah and I think that's a much uh, better and more positive approach in terms of just your own growth I don't know if we, like I, I think you mentioned the word isolation I think many creatives regardless of whether you're public facing and on stage or not I think that that whole that kind of isolated creativity sometimes we people do do that so that they can really focus on themselves and focus on the art but it it, but it unfortunately Mm. by doing that it does shut you off to to the things around you and I think how can you really learn about a place if you don't know about the people that live there I don't I just it's kind of you know logically that makes sense but I know a lot of people are kind of afraid they either feel like it's not inclusive enough or they don't fit in um, which is the exact mm. point at which you should go out there and do something. Um, but it does yeah. take guts, I think. It definitely takes, you know, you've got to be very vulnerable and selfless and to, to give your time like that. Yeah, and it's scary to come into a, in a room full of giant, you know, Mexican and black prisoners, you know, like scary big guys that have been in gangs and done probably done crazy stuff, but they were all very welcoming and respectful and really sweet to me and really kind and it was it was it was very intimidating but I was just like I'm just going to throw myself in and um and the kids as well here you know like the teenagers anywhere in the world are diff- a difficult audience um sometimes they just didn't want to do anything and other times they were really inspired but that's just life like it's not in my work that I do everyone's very positive and I get musicians to come and work with me and everyone's like, yeah, let's do this. And I just interact with people, but it's easy, you know, but working at the school, it was like very emotional, sometimes very difficult, but also like wonderful. Um, But yeah, I, I agree. I think it's good to put yourself in a scary place when you've been doing something for so long that you know you can do. I mean, it's still scary to me to put out an album and to try and write an album and it's a God, challenge yes. but but yeah you have to like I think it's good to stay um inexperienced at some things and try new things definitely yeah I, I just don't know it, it's kind of like seeing a visual chart of a line going in a straight you know what I mean a straight line without any bumps and breaks or crumbles I just don't know yeah. how interesting that visual looks and obviously, in hindsight, yeah. when you go through shit and you're like, oh, this feels awful. I can't get out of it. It's too deep. I'm yeah. in the gunk. I'm in that goo. And then you come out of it and then you think, you know, thank God for that because you're living. At least you're living. And I think that that kind of perspective yeah. is obviously incredibly powerful. But when you're in it, you're like, no, I don't want this. Um, well, at least I yeah. am. It's just painful. But I definitely think, you know, putting yourself outside of your comfort zone um, and doing something Mm -hmm. is definitely, you learn valuable lessons that I don't know, I don't know how else you could really do it. I suppose, as you said earlier, as a touring artist, you get to learn that too, boundaries, uh, cultures, Mm -hmm. your own work ethic. I can imagine you've learned a lot about that too, but so mm-hmm. how so you mentioned making this this album or making an album in general what were the I don't want to say challenges because I find it's kind of a boxy word but what were the things that you found hadn't come up before to be honest it sounds like a, a weird answer but I I honestly didn't find this album challenging which is I think why it's one of my better albums um and the reason for that was that I I think because I I was developing this album with Charles Scott, who was my kind of co-producer, co-helper on this record, but I had a very strong vision kind of early on for the script of this album, like if it was to be a film, what that would be. 
so I had this narrative and, and I was living here and I, I moved and I think I was so full of so much stimulus and inspiration and you know so many different impressions that I'd gathered from from being here and not in England I was really full up with a lot of like love and ideas and excitement and romance about what this the sound of this film might be the soundtrack to this like amazing like 80s themes like really cool dark sexy film I wanted to make and then when I went to make the music it was just there um and I think also being on a major record label which I was before so I just finished a 10-year deal with um EMI Warner I think the way that you like usually create an album when everyone else is involved is that they're like, okay, so we've only got this much budget, so you have to go in the studio for two to three weeks, get it done then, and then the whole thing should be done really in six weeks. That would have been a challenge for me if I'd done it that way this time, but I did it over a year and a half, and very secretly, and just in my own time, when I, when me and Charles had like a spare day, we'd just get together and secretly do this stuff. I didn't really tell anyone I was doing it. Um, and I think that relieved all the pressure of anyone even knowing that I was making an album or judging it or having questions. I just did it because I was enjoying myself. Um, and that was really liberating and felt very freeing. And I think to me, the album sounds very like full of liberation and excitement, which is how it felt really. It really does. I've, I've listened to it in so many different, um, in so many different places, you know, at home, on the road, walking, a lot of walking and listening to it. And it's just, just <laughs> it definitely has that energy and that feeling of uh, it's, it's much more, the pacing is much more open than your music before but it's still very familiar yeah. so you've kept so much of your spirit that you've had on your previous albums but it definitely feels very light um some songs of course in terms of the lyrical content depending on how you perceive them are really are of course much heavier and much darker but the mm -hmm. but everything about the sound is is incredibly um it's open and that could mean, you know, that could mean a lot. But you, you've also written so expertly in kind of alter ego character before, you know, and especially now with this kind of film idea. Did you inhabit that character in order to develop the music or does the process of writing the music result in having that character? Which one is first? I think it's a combination. The first one I wrote was Kids in the Dark and I wasn't in character for that because I was just feeling the romance of LA and like just thinking about being in love and stuff like that. And then as the album developed, I guess like songs like The Hunger or Vampires or Jasmine would definitely be coming more from the script idea and with sort of Nikki as the protagonist, but The Hunger, for example, was yeah me being Nikki and imagining all the girls coming to get me and what we would do together. Um, but then Jasmine is like one of the lost girls, so that's her story. The album is a real combination of of all of those things, and the same with um, Pearl and Two Sons. Like she featured here and there, and she was definitely someone I went to for sometimes for lyrical inspiration or just for a feeling. Um, but the last album, The Bride, I was kind of that whole album I wrote out every song as like chapters of a novel before I even wrote the song because I knew that it was I was the bride for all of those songs like that that last album was probably my strongest kind of character concept record um so I've, I've done it both ways all different ways like you say but um I think it's for me it's just really nice to have um to create my own mythology and characters and narrative and archetypes and stories I think myths are extremely powerful and when we say myths we think a lot of like greek mythology or old religious stories or mysticism but um but myth i think is still very like rele um, relevant in today's society like the myths we tell ourselves as a society the stories we create the narratives we create and they can be very fearful and damaging or they can be very positive and healing so I just want to be contributing to the healing myths that connect us all that heal our wounds as a society that help us go to the dark places like you said places we don't want to really sit in 
but that create a lot more beauty and like nuance and 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 you know there's a lot more fruit in those dark places I think than than just a straight line that you you know on the graph that's just like this you know perfect thing which doesn't exist. Well, the stories that we hear from our parents, our grandparents, friends, people that we meet working, you know, strangers, those stories are so important. Mm-hmm. It's almost like the human, um, it's like our human right to pass those down. Yeah. Um, and obviously I love that there's a song called Vampire. You know, th- that's such a huge part of society. We're fascinated by those fantasy characters and they conjure a visual element straight away, which I find so much of your music does. Um, you can you can listen mm-hmm. to it, and then you can have your mind work in pictures just instantly. Yeah, um, and that's I think, good. Yeah, yeah and, and and you mentioned the bride, and I was just thinking now that is so I I totally one of the best uh, festivals, end of the road festival which I covered a few <laughs> years ago, I saw you perform that, uh, it was during that album. And mm-hmm. when was that? 2016, I think it was. 16, I think. Yeah. Yeah, it must have been. Mm-hmm. And there was this live was proposal. Really... Do you remember? And... Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, um, that was my really good friend. Yes. And we proposed to each other. They've since been married. And oh I went to their wedding. Oh my um, but yeah, it was very romantic and sweet, and it was <laughs> kind of a good antidote to this sad story. That um, <laughs> there was some romance on at the end of that show. I know, and the crowd—it um, was raining that whole weekend. It was raining, but it was never cold. It was just like, okay, we're gonna just our bodies are just gonna be damp and soaked which made it all mm-hmm. the more dramatic because it was like that you were wearing this long white dress and reaching out to the crowd and everybody was reaching back at you. And it was one of those really, <laughs> really emphatic moments of just, uh, I, I, I remember looking around at some of the people that I was there with and just thinking, wow, we, we might not ever see something like this. You know, who gets to see a live proposal on stage at a yeah. at a festival in the middle of the UK, you know, it's not, not something know. that happens it often. Was, <laughs> no, it was really special. It was very special, and um, like you say, that you know, music to me is about like ritual and community, and especially the live shows, things like that, where people love to go to a wedding or they love to be witness to to some some sort of heightened moment and. We, you know, we don't all go to church anymore or have Sunday places, We, you know, community centres and things where everyone hangs out and goes for, a, you know, a dance on a Friday night. I would love to have that, more of that. I really, I would give anything to have a Friday night dance that me and all my friends go to every week and play cards and drink. And it's like, um, you know, I think people are starving for that. They're quite hungry. And um, so when moments like that happen where you're all gathered together for a purpose, and then on top of that, people declare their undying love to each other. Oh. <laughs> it's like, oh. yeah, I want more of that. Like, Come on, great. anybody that's else? Yeah. Anybody else want to get married yeah. today? <laughs> Just push two random sons onto stage, both of them looking confused, like, okay, I guess this is yeah. happening. <laughs> Getting swept up in the moment. <laughs> Pause the podcast. Pause the podcast. Are you looking at a calendar full of great events but struggling to find tickets? StubHub's gotcha. Whatever your favorite band, team, or venue, StubHub is here to save the day with the best tickets for any budget. Whether you're looking for a seat at a Broadway show, tickets to the summer's big arena tour, or a night of cheering on your hometown team, StubHub has the seats you're looking for at the price you want to pay. Head to cosradio.lv StubHub or their user-friendly app to find tickets that are 100% guaranteed by FanProtect. StubHub's never sold out with the most shows, the most tickets, and the most fans. So head on over to cosradio.lv StubHub or the StubHub app. The best tickets to the best experiences in music, sports, and theater. That's cosradio.lv StubHub. And I love what you said that music is a ritual because there is that thing that you can hold on to, especially with storytelling, 
linked to that uh, we we so badly want that that to see people happy and to see people yeah. fall in love and yes there's the romanticism that's been like you know it's hyperbent it's it's just gone crazy on 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 you know tv although i love that when it's taken to the extreme yeah. um there, there is so much in that that people try to recreate within their own lives, whether it's, you know, in relationships or working environment. There's so much that people want out of that, you know, that feeling of mm-hmm. community and connection. Um, so do you, in terms of just live performance, is that something, do you, do you enjoy that side of of what you do and part and part of the journey of you as an artist, do you enjoy performing live? I do. I think um, I'm quite, I'm naturally like a much more homebody person and I'm, um, I'm not like the most extrovert person. I am friendly and outgoing, but I wouldn't say I'm one of those people that loves playing live and I can't wait to get on stage. It's quite, it's quite a big effort for me to pluck up the energy and the courage to do that. Um, and but once I'm on stage, I really enjoy being the conduit of some energy. That's how I feel about it. Is you're kind of like the head priestess of something. <laughs> it's not. It's sort of my job and my responsibility to take care of the audience and to channel something very like high energy and and beautiful and something that's coming through me. Um, onto them and through them and with them so that everybody can experience that kind of religious feeling of togetherness and being connected into like the source energy which is like enlivening and full of love and you know and and it's just bright and exciting and beautiful and dark and all the things Um, because I think that what everyone's looking for like you say is a connection to each other but to to see like you said um you know we want to see think people in love or we want to see beautiful things or things that elevate us and I think that's especially in this world where everyone's on their phone all the time and so much stimulation so much content we have less and less time and less and less places to go to reflect and sit with ourselves and to find that connection just on our own so like you say, we look to romantic films, we look to music shows, we look to drugs and parties or, or exciting work or whatever it is to connect you to that, you know, that that force, um, which which is great. But I think um, for me, going back to stories, it's the story you tell yourself, like what's, what story do you tell yourself about your connection to those things? And when do you have time to sit and... Right. and feel that joy just with no other stimulation with through no, nothing else so when I'm on tour before I go out and do a show I will meditate and do yoga and sit in my room and I just center myself and I get myself connected to that place um so that when I go out on stage I know that hopefully I'm going to channel some of that stuff and then it will provide like a, a optimum experience for everybody um but that's kind of taking it as like a spiritual service rather than mm, right, <laughs> just being you know right. a musician and and it can be quite hard to do I'm that sure. for months on end yeah I'm sure <laughs> but, um, you I'm know sure. but I because I don't you know I'm not with my family or with my loved ones or my dog or I want to you know I'd love to be home cooking and things like that but my feeling is that if I do it I have to do it really well and um and I can't just go out like half assed and be like, hey, woohoo, you know, like, it's, <laughs> what up, it's everybody? Yeah. Me, so. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> Although maybe with this new album, there's yes. more sort of, you know, it's more uplifting and fun. So I could just more dance cheeky. around and be more yes. silly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, it's definitely exactly. cheeky. It's definitely cheeky. I, I definitely felt that. Um, but I, I also think that doing, having that ritual before you perform, is of course uh, grounding, but it's also something then that you can use to put you into that mindset of right. This is this is what I'm gonna put my mind and heart and body into, as opposed to yeah. uh, I, I'm just not sure. 
I don't, I'm not a performer. I'm on the other side of it, but I'm just not sure how you would go into anything if you don't do some sort of preparation. You know, it's such a yeah. grueling, physically, it's also such a grueling thing, which I think a lot of people don't, they think if you don't move around on stage that you're not exerting energy, mm. which doesn't make yeah. sense <laughs> because there's so much. And I move around, I <laughs> you, move exactly. around a lot. A lot. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I think you just, yeah, and it's really important to look after your voice, like your body is your instrument. So, you know, like some people will get, you know, like guitarists, can get really drunk the night before they might not play that great but their hands aren't damaged so they can right. play but if I got really drunk the night before my voice sounds bad you know like I can't sustain that for for weeks on end so it's almost like it's very disciplined I have to be very healthy and um get try and get a good night's sleep on a bus and loads of people snoring yeah. <laughs> like you know people coming in and out and lights going on and off and being moved around all night you know there's a lot of um yeah it's pretty it's a challenge to to stay well and healthy on on the road because it, it's basically full of things that are very difficult to kind of overcome but um yeah I have a lot of things in place where I warm up warm up and warm down my voice and try and eat like not eat dairy just because that creates loads of mucus on your vocal cords and I try and stay fit so I can jump around and not get tired and out of breath when I'm singing as well and then there's all you know the nerves and the anxiety like the emotional stuff right that comes with with moving all the time and um so yeah but then it's equally can be so fun and like you say just seeing all these amazing cities seeing all the fans who are so sweet and feeling that energy and love back off of the audience is is gives me that communal experience that I you know that I miss right um and it's really that's really sweet and it's it's a very like joyful thing to have done a really great show right to come off stage yeah I definitely think that balances it out because there's that huge duality that I think performers, whether you're on screen or on stage, you, you're going you're going onto a stage, somebody is watching you, but there's that huge energy exchange of people screaming and there's so much yeah. going on. You can feel that vibrating, that frequency, and then you suddenly alone in the bus, on the tour bus, yeah. you know, with the curtains kind of half-drawn, lights going on and off, yeah. a bumpy road, uh, and and then it's quiet. And then you have that duality kind of on repeat, on loop. But so mm. do you have any limitations in terms of what you won't do on tour? Like, is there anything that you just after doing this for so long, you've just realized, you know, other than obviously taking care of yourself and not going out and getting totally sloshed, but is there is there mm -hmm. any... Is there anything that you won't do because you know that it would be harmful towards your performance and or just your mental well-being? Like sometimes you have to do a lot of interviews or promotion in the day. Yes. Um, but I have to have like a few hours before to not be, because you're giving out so much anyway. And I remember sometimes just having to talk like in interviews for hours and then I've got to go and do like an hour and a half of singing and it's just like, what do you think my vocal cord, like, you know, we're just, you know, it's just like, it's so hard to explain to people. People don't realise, they don't think of that. Um, so I try to just make sure that I get like enough time. But I think the main thing I, w I don't do anymore is um, when I started, I had a great team, but there's a lot of people sometimes on the road that have like drink or drug problems and would be drinking all day, you know, before they set up the stage and then mistakes get made. And when you're a new artist, you can, you need people and you can be quite naive or just, you think, oh, I should just put up with this, like, these people with terrible, like, addictions and behaviour. And now I just would not put up with that because I have done it for so long. But I think that was a really difficult transition for me to respect myself enough and to feel confident enough to say, look, this doesn't work for me to have toxic you know, like partying and all this crazy behaviour from my crew that, you know, that I need to pay to, to be professional. And when it reflects badly on the show because things don't work or, you know, someone's in a bad mood and snaps, you know, all of that stuff that I think can be very 
prevalent. I think I just won't accept that. So people that are on my crew, are like my team now are incredibly professional and very like loving and protective and sort of have like great integrity, those people. You know, I love my team and um, they consist of men and women. Like I love a nice mixture of girls and boys. I think it's really cool. And um, everyone's very, very respectful. So when they're working, they're working and we keep it like a nice environment for everyone to be in because you're kind of like family living together. And and if you're in a family with someone with, you know, who's an alcoholic, who's just like not pulling their weight, I think you'd, out of love, you'd say something. So that's kind of what the way I look at it is like, we all need to look out for each other and be kind. And it doesn't mean that you don't have fun and people don't, you know, we drink and have fun and do stuff, but it, it, it's just to make sure that we're all aware that it's not it, that we're doing the best job we can for the show. And, and knowing how what your limitations are in terms of just accepting, uh, you know, professional uh, that level of professionalism and how if something does go wrong, people often just look at the artist. They forget that there's an entire crew around that could have affected yeah. that. You know, so there's there's also that out of sight, out of mind thing with how the industry yeah. actually works. So that's an amazing lesson, I think, terrible to go through, but an amazing thing for you to 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 learn, you yeah. know, which you can only do after you've toured for so long. I mean, also just thinking of who you've toured with, I know very early in, in, in your catalogue, you opened some shows for Radiohead and you later toured with Coldplay, I think it was in South America, I was reading somewhere, yeah. it was South America, was that, yes, I'm right. Um, it was South America, and, yeah, yes. and Depeche Mode in in America. Yeah, we've done some oh big God. tours with huge bands, <laughs> which is but, really fun. But and, they're also like really culty. Cool. Yeah, they're culty bands too. So th- there's those there's like levels and notches that a band can make, and I feel like especially with your with your work, you have such loyal fans. But look, just saying Radiohead, Coldplay, it's almost a, an entire genre of music, Depeche Mode as well. Um, how, yeah. what was it like to face some of those crowds? How different was it for you to, to go in there knowing that you were in that kind of uh, history-making experience? <laughs> um, I mean, it was, it, it, they've been some of my best memories, especially because when we supported Radiohead, it was for the In Rainbows tour. Oh and my god, that's one of my <laughs> favorite albums <laughs> ever, and <sighs> it was beautiful. Yeah. And just sort of going around all the amphitheaters in Europe, we went to Nantes, and I'm trying to think, yeah, that one was like a, a really old gladiator sort of amphitheater, you know, like ancient rocks and stones and. Um, so all of the venues we were going to was incredible and then we'd get to play to everyone which was which was fun and like sometimes people discover who you are through that and that's great and other times people aren't that interested you know it's quite a tough crowd but we'd try and win them over and they they like it Um, but the best bit was after we finished our show all of us would go and eat some food and they made really lovely catered sort of healthy food and then as a band, we'd all run out every night and be like, let's go and watch the show. And we watched that full show wow. every night for like three weeks and cried pretty much every night. Like <laughs> it was just a be- beautiful thing to witness and see and such a such an amazing band performing. And then with Coldplay, they were massive audiences, like maybe, I can't remember, like 60,000 or 100,000, I don't know, but just huge, huge stadiums in South America. And the South Americans were so sweet. And, and a lot of Bats and Ashes fans came up to the front and they were like, Natasha, Natasha. And we, we were so like bowled over that they even knew who we were. Um, but so cute and like um, really excited. And then we played some shows and I think we, we did pretty well. Like people, you know, to come out to a huge stadium like that. There were, you know, some people that stayed and listened to us. Um, and again, to watch Coldplay or Depeche Mode, like to watch these bands do their thing and for everyone to be holding up lighters, like a, an ocean of lighters and glow sticks and people singing. And it's like, it makes you cry. It's like so powerful. Um, it's really, really, really amazing. 
Yeah, especially yeah, because those bands have, they've got so, especially that in Rainbows tour, I remember I saw, I saw that as well. Just, it was like on the cusp between their last tour and then them starting in Rainbows tour. And yeah. that were, I can't remember where, it was probably in Belgium somewhere at one of the festivals. Yes, Rockwechter. Yeah. Um, and I just right. remember how, when people cry seeing those shows, it's like when people cry watching Sigaros. It's a deep, it's yeah. like a howl. I feel like it's a, mm. it's something yeah. from somewhere else, and especially a band like Radiohead, who's been. It's they are so. It's not only that they're so well known. It's that their music has just kind of stood the test of of trends and time and you know, just the ideology mm -hmm. behind some of the songs. So did you, do you feel, did you connect to, you know, the artists as well? How much of, of your time was spent actually building those relationships? Like, did you, could you talk to them about their craft and ask questions? Like, how, how comfy are yeah. you with, with, with doing that? Yeah, we, I mean, we spent lots of time together and I, um, you know, made friends with, I've made friends with Tom York, you know, and the, all of the guys in that band are lovely. And then Chris Martin was really nice and supportive and sweet. If I ever see them, they're always very kind to me. And yeah, we had some deep chats um, about songwriting and music. And I asked Tom York his opinion about whether I should do this commercial and like, what, what do you think about commerce versus like artistry and creativity? And um, yeah, lots of lovely conversations and we spent new year's eve together i think like four years ago you know things like that so it's nice as the friendships built and um i haven't seen any of them for a while but you know there's all, all always like good energy there um yeah and it's and you end up eating dinner together or chatting and it's just nice because you feel like they're giving you taking you under their wing or acknowledged you in some way and it's really nice to chat and, to, and for them to talk you know to ask you things too do you remember something that they asked you that you kind of were a bit taken aback from was there anything that they that you guys chatted about at the time that you felt like oh this is this is an interesting uh take on something you know because obviously all those interactions are so um they're so quick you know you you go through this tour and then you're on to the next so was there anything about that interact those interactions that really stood out to you? You know, like if Chris Martin was saying, like, what do you think of this song? Or like, what do you think of, you know, what do I think of what he's doing? And I thought that was so funny that I would be asked <laughs> that. But obviously that's cool because, um, you know, he respects what I do. And, 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 and when you've been established for a while, new bands are interesting. You know, it's, it's a give and take process of, that you know we can kind of inspire each other or we have different viewpoints but I always you know I felt humbled and was like that's cool that I'm you know that I'm my opinion's important and um as a songwriter and things like that so that's nice absolutely and just being respected and and having that kind of relationship build on that because it's kind of shitty when you get stuck on tour if you are on a big label with people that you aren't inspired by or you know you don't really form that close relationship with I'm sure you just get by and you just deal with it but yeah. sometimes when you do have those experiences that can really affect the way that you think about the work you make I can only imagine mm. that's really uh, that's really helpful for you just to in just uh, to enjoy your time as well because you want to have fun yeah and, and yeah of course and you want it to be interesting um but is there do, do you remember the first time you ever performed so my first performance I remember being I think I was like 17 or 18 and I performed at like I think it I can't even remember what it was. It was just some small, almost like in a pub or something yeah. with my my, my long-term teenage boyfriend. And we loved Leonard Cohen and Lou Reed. And, and um, we did Oh Happy Day by Spiritualized. Um, oh, wow. We kind of sang it together. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> and it was so, I was so nervous. I just kind of hid my face and I was thought I was going to die because I was so scared. But, um, <laughs> 
But it kept, I did it, and then I came on stage, and people were like, oh, your voice is beautiful. And I was like, oh, because I, I hated my voice, and I was so self-conscious oh, wow. when I was younger. Yeah. But, but yeah, it was great. To, I mean, it was absolutely horrifically terrifying, but I'm glad I did it because, um, you know, the first time is always the worst. <laughs> yeah, I, and also that song especially. I mean, that's quite challenging to do, but clearly you, yeah. you, know, you were connected to that. So yeah. then, and then the question that we always ask on the show is what your first concert was that you saw live, the first band you saw live. I've got a pretty good answer for this. Mine really? was, I was, I was about nine years old and I went to see Michael Jackson with my mum <gasps> at Wembley Stadium doing the Bad Tour. Yes, um, that's amazing. And it was amazing. <laughs> it was so good. Oh my god! So, I mean... You know, as a kid, seeing that was like very made a huge impression. This must be the gig is produced by Adam Kibble, and we'd like to thank Billy Yost and the Kickback for our theme song, Rube, and buy their music at thekickbackband.com. Daniel Brater and Dean Berger for the additional sound design and the Consequence Podcast Network where you'll find a bunch of other amazing shows. Hey! If you've listened this far, why not go the extra mile and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you find your podcasts your comments provide valuable feedback for us and it helps other people find us too for information on new episodes be sure to follow us on facebook twitter or instagram at tmbtgpod and generally just irritate everyone you know about the show thanks again and i miss you already again for listening to this week's episode here's a little reminder that StubHub is the best place to score the tickets you need whenever you need them backed by their 100% fan protect guarantee StubHub has the seats you want at the price you want to pay and they're never sold out so you can score tickets up to the last minute head to cosradio.lv slash StubHub that's cosradio.lv slash StubHub, and then enjoy the show. Consequence Podcast Network.